0: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is novelist and essayist Leslie Jamison. Jamison is a graduate of Harvard University and the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and is currently finishing up her doctoral dissertation at Yale. She's also a columnist for the New York Times Book Review, and the writer of perhaps the most talked-about essay collection of the year, The Empathy Exams from Gray Wolf Press. The New York Times said it's hard to imagine a stronger, more thoughtful voice emerging this year. NPR called the Empathy Exams a virtuosic manifesto of human pain. And Charles D'Ambrosio says the Empathy Exams earns its place on the shelf alongside Susan Sontag and Virginia Woolf, with Jameson taking her pain in one hand and a lump of pure sound in the other and crushing them together until a new vital language begins to emerge. Welcome to Between the
0: Covers, Leslie Jamison. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Well, well, let's talk about empathy as an organizing principle for the collection. Did you know as you were writing these pieces, pieces that have very different topics? Did you know going into each of them that you were going to link them with this theme? Or was it something that once you had some essays, you, you looked at what you could draw out of them and connect them together with
0: much more the latter so i started the earliest piece in the collection i wrote in 2006 and i i wasn't writing at all with an eye towards having a completed collection or anything like that i was just writing pieces that struck my interest or compelled me in some way and it was really actually it was the process of working as a medical actor where i was kind of essentially grading empathy and uh writing about that experience that got me started thinking about empathy explicitly as a concept. And once I had empathy in my mind as this question that I was considering, like, it's this word we hear all the time, but what is it really made of? Like, what does it actually consist of? Then I started to realize that so many of the pieces that I had written without that conceptual umbrella in mind were actually looking at that question from different directions. So I started to think about what would happen if I put some of those pieces together, and then once I started gathering them, some of the later pieces in the collection I did write with with empathy in mind, like uh, the Morgellons piece. By the time I I wrote uh, a piece about Morgellons disease, which is this kind of controversial skin disorder, I I knew that it that I wanted it to be part of this collection, and that the collection was geared towards empathy, so it was a different experience to write with that more consciously in mind.
1: One of the aspects of the empathy exams that I think makes it so vital as as literature and and keeps it alive in, in the in the conversation that's going on right now around it is that I think generally we think of empathy when we think of empathy casually, we think of it as being benign and relatively simple in, in conception. But you start out the collection in uh, saying that empathy is perched between gift and invasion, which immediately gives us, both a surprisingly new perspective on the word, but also a more complex one. Can, can you talk about what you mean by uh, it being perched between gift and invasion?
0: Yeah, well, I, I started to think about the ways that empathy, you know, which I understand as some version of imagining yourself into somebody else's situation, can function as a beautiful thing, but it can also function as, as a somewhat... Tyrannizing thing because essentially you're making assumptions about the life of another person and and you can make those assumptions with various degrees of responsibility and knowledge. I mean, it could be sometimes we make assumptions about people because we're just listening to what how they're describing their own experience and and then putting ourselves in their shoes. But there is always you're you're never going to live inside somebody else's experience. So every time you're imagining yourself there, there's a way that you're kind of compo- imposing your own conception of them on onto the life that they're living and and that was one of the aspects that I wanted to get at the way that there is this kind of there's something a little bit aggressive or colonial about that imposing of your own sense of them onto them and and i i did i think i'm, I'm essentially quite drawn to the project of imagining other lives which only deepens my desire to kind of look at the ways that it can go wrong because i think to fully own or celebrate a thing that celebration is so much Truer and more responsible if you are kind of taking into account all the all the perils of, of something as well. So,
1: and, and even the Greek root for the word you mentioned has the sense of penetrating, yeah. and a sense of a voyage, both. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, and I and I think part of part of what I like about that sense of a voyage is that it acknowledges that there's always going to be a There's always going to be a difference between you and the other person you're imagining. And I think one of the most dangerous things we can do is forget that gap. Um, Think, get sort of overly confident about our ability to dissolve that gap. And I think especially when I'm writing about empathy across certain kinds of socioeconomic boundaries, I think it gets really presumptuous to think you understand the life of a person who's had a, quite a different background than you to sort of think, well, because I've done my homework or learned this or gone to this place, like somehow get it. And I think it's really important to always recognize, well, look, these are the ways that I don't still get it or I can't ever totally get it.
1: You have this line in the in the title essay, the in the empathy exams, the double blade of how I felt about anything that hurt. I wanted someone else to feel it with me and also wanted it entirely for myself. That sort of touches upon both this idea that it, it, it empathy can be wanted and desired, but also can be something that we shouldn't assume is wanted and desired.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I, and one of the flip sides of empathy is a kind of desire for you know, privacy or the sanctity of somebody's personal experience. And I was really struck by, I've now spoken about this book in a lot of different contexts. And at one point I had the chance to talked to a group of mental health care practitioners in Danbury in an outpatient clinic in Danbury, Connecticut. And it was, you know, what I really wanted out of that was less to come and tell them what empathy was, because they probably know actually a lot more about what empathy is than I do. But when I was talking to them about their own experience, one of the things that came up a lot was the importance of creating a dynamic of trust and comfort before pain could be exposed or queried, that it's, you know, that empathy doesn't just look like, okay, h- here we are, you and I, we've just met, like, let me just get so deep into your trauma, and that's how I'm going to show that I care, like, that that is actually can be incredibly destructive if you don't sort of have the time and the building process of of, of making a connection first. And so I think there. Is, yeah another reminder of the kind of importance of respecting certain boundaries or putting boundaries around when and how empathy should happen.
1: Well well the first two essays are both medically themed. The empathy exams you, you mentioned you're a medical actor and you're grading people on empathy, but also as a medical actor are probably having to find empathy for the the patients you're pretending to be yeah and, and then Devil's bait, where you're going to the conference for people who have this controversial skin disorder, which really raises the question can you can you feel empathy for someone and connect with them when you don't necessarily believe what they're going through is is potentially real in the yeah. in the objective sense yeah and those those almost feel like mirror images and a nice a nice pairing and could could you talk a little bit more about about the devil's bait
0: yeah sure well that it's interesting because that essay also gets at a, another kind of peril of empathy. If we're talking about the ways that the collection interrogates the sense of empathy, It's just a wholly good thing. Um, when I first learned about Morgellons disease, which is yeah, it's a it's a disorder where people who identify as having Morgellons disease, the the most remarkable thing symptom that they experience is having these unexplainable fibers emerging from their skin. And the CDC did a big study of it several years ago, and it was essentially inconclusive, but didn't determine that there was really anything medically to back up. or They they weren't able to find instances of it. But there is this very vital, tight-knit community of people who identify as suffering from it. And once I learned that they had this annual conference in Austin, I knew immediately that that was – where my story was because what I was really interested in was what what kind of community were they building and what were they getting out of that community and part of what I found when I went there and spoke to some of these Morgellons patients was that I actually had much more mixed feelings about the community that they were forming than than I had necessarily expected to have because I was aware that they were providing true and real and deeply felt comfort to each other but they were also could Confirming each other's impressions of what was going on in this way that, you know, kind of identifying with somebody's pain isn't always the best way to relieve their pain. That was a big question that kind of emerged out of that experience for me. And was I going to do them the best service by just kind of nodding along with their narrative of what was happening? Or was there a a kind of pushback that was actually going to be a better demonstration of care than simply kind of taking their? their sense of what they were going through at face value
1: in case you just tuned in we're talking today to leslie jameson the author of the empathy exams it reminded me of the movie safe by todd haynes have you seen that i haven't i haven't it's it's interesting in the sense it's with julianne Moore, and he makes this i think he makes an assertion essentially in the film this connection between culture psychology and physical symptoms and and in a situation where it's really hard to disentangle them and he doesn't necessarily try to in the sense that you have this upper middle class woman in suburban reagan era america who develops multiple chemo- chemical sensitivity uh disorder and has real like truly real physical symptoms she gets uh bloody noses when she gets exposed to smog and has all sorts of other um, tangible objective signs however it's also really clear that it has something to do with the milieu she's in and even her class and her uh, and the era uh-huh. it somehow all feels like it's informing the physical and there was a way in which I felt like the film was... A, a gesture of empathy and at the same time a critique. And yeah. so it was It was fascinating and you couldn't reduce it to one or the other. And I almost right. felt that with right. you visiting the Morgellans conference. You weren't buying into the narrative, but you were still looking for a way to uh, connect with the people there.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think there, there was something fundamentally ag- agnostic in my stance there where I, I didn't emerge from that conference having a clear sense of what was going on for the people who were there. And I certainly felt that there were probably quite different, maybe quite different things going on for different people. Like there was a kind of diversity of experience that I wasn't expecting, even though they were all had chosen to classify themselves under the same diagnosis. But I did feel like, you know, I, I more than anything, I just wanted to respect that they were in pain. There was something that kind of respecting the reality of that pain ended up emerging as that was kind of the role that I could fill because I wasn't a doctor who could diagnose what they had or didn't have. And and then I also think I approached the whole world with a sense of, like, you know, whatever, Horatio's realization, like there are more things in heaven and earth than we could possibly imagine. Like, I, I really believe that. So I think there's just a lot that I kind of don't, I don't think I totally get it, you know, and that's kind of what I bring to most situations that I end up in. Hmm.
1: A lot of the essays in, in the empathy exams are a hybrid between memoir and, and journalism, but also often you expose your your own confusion or uh, uncertainties in the process of writing the uh, essays as you're writing them. So there's a metafictional element occasionally in, in the stories as well. Can, can you talk about why you made that choice to um, include questions of form within the form.
0: Yeah. One of the things I found in writing certain pieces in the collection was that experimenting with form made it easier for me to write about personal material that was challenging to write about, like not just challenging because it involves some degree of exposure, although that's also true, but challenging because I think sometimes the experiences that impact us the most are the hardest ones to find what we really want to say about them and that having certain kinds of formal gambits or constraints made it easier for me to speak. So in a sense, I think that's part of why form rises to the surface in certain essays. And I, I, I mean, a good example of that would be a piece called Morphology of the Hit, where I'm describing getting mugged in Nicaragua, and I'm using the work of this early 20th century Russian formalist named Vladimir Prop who did this really interesting thing with folktales where he broke down traditional Russian folktales into these, I think, 32 essential moves, narrative moves, basically, like the narrative sets off on his adventure. The narrative gets a or the narrator, the hero gets a helper. And it really just started as literally an experiment. Like, could I tell the story of what had happened to me in Nicaragua? using some combination of these narrative pieces. And I think part of part of my desire to do that was to find a way to tell a story I couldn't tell. But I also wanted to tell the story of how hard it had been to tell that story in the first place. And by having the these narrative pieces remain kind of conspicuous little blocks in the essay, and also doing things like, you know, rearranging them, telling them out of order, calling out the moments when I felt there was no narrative block or piece for what I wanted to say. I was also trying to dramatize, like, look, this was a tough or tricky story to tell.
1: You you cite Charles D'Ambrosio in the acknowledgments and, and quote him that he taught you that the problem with an essay can eventually become its subject. Is is that what you're uh, you're alluding to when you talk about figuring out how to write something you're not sure how to write, but also letting us in on that process of not knowing how to write it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That that piece of wisdom from, from Charlie really speaks to that dilemma and just the general ethos of taking the moments where the writing feels really difficult and reading those as moments of opportunity rather than obstacles. So like the fact that this is really tough to tell, well, that means that you're onto something like that means you're trying to tell something worth telling. And I think he, uh, he's been such an important teacher and writer for me for a thousand reasons. And I've been really gratified by the fact that sometimes when people get in touch with me about the book, they, you know, they read the acknowledgements and they actually like really love that quote. Like I feel like I was sort of able to bring that gospel to lots of people that Charlie's never even met, which made me really happy. Um, and also happy that that line just stuck out to people in the way that it did to me. But yeah, I think seeing the way that something being hard about an essay could actually just open the door for a a, a kind of deeper sort of honesty and like peeling back one more layer to expose the self that had trouble even putting the thing together, I think that there's a way that that can become an endless and exhausting rabbit hole, right? Like we don't, especially with journalism, like I really have to fight the impulse when I write more journalistic pieces to not narrate every single little thing that went wrong or every subject who didn't want to talk to me or every, not every difficulty needs to be narrated. But I would
1: imagine that too much self-reflexiveness might take away some of the urgent immediacy of an issue
0: absolutely yeah and i think it it can become a kind of self-absorption that isn't generative that's sort of deflective or repetitive and 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 that's part of where i need to be an editor for myself and also where i've gotten really good editing from other people where they're like look like you know i mean I, I, yeah again especially with journalism where every great piece of journalism has a thousand dead ends that just don't end up making it into the piece which is exactly how it should be but my sort of desire to like Turn every single thing that happens into a useful site for inquiry. Like sometimes I just need somebody else to be like, that doesn't need to be in this version of the piece. Like, right.
1: in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Leslie Jameson, the author of The Empathy Exams. So you're also upfront, Leslie, about your doubts about when you are or are not actually being empathetic. When it's not always clear. And I think that points to an uncertainty about, uh, the gift invasion dynamic, and also one's own agenda versus one's per, the perceived agenda of the person you're supposedly being empathetic with. But you but you say in in one of the essays, I wonder if my empathy has always been this in every case, just about of hypothetical self pity projected onto someone else. Can can you talk more about uh, that? I I find that brings a lot of power to the essays. The the fact that even when you th- you think you're achieving this, which right. is which we all put forth as this great societal good and the, and potentially difficult thing to do, that sometimes there's even a doubt whether it actually is that at all.
0: Part of part of what happened when I tried to break down what empathy actually is as an emotional experience, and I I mean I can't break that down in like scientific terms, although I've had the chance to speak to people who can, but. I think part of what I realized is that sometimes what I'm doing is thinking, well, what would it be like if this thing happened to me? Like, what would I, you know, if I'm looking at somebody who's going through this strange skin disorder, I think, well, what, what, if I, if I were in their shoes, what would I feel like? And so I I think in that moment that you quoted, I was just trying to transcribe that for what it was like, oh, actually, when we, a lot of the time we were thinking about other people We're actually just like sort of thinking about ourselves in this elaborate what if phenomenon and framing it in that way was just something I never thought about. Um, And I think I did, I I did want to call attention to the way that thinking what would I feel like if this happened to me is there is something that's fundamentally still caught inside the self inside that act, even if you want it. To be directed towards another, and I and I want to honor both parts of that. I want to honor that it is still a little bit self-absorbed, but I also want to honor that I think often there's an impulse beneath it that's not self-absorbed that right. is trying to escape the self, and but we just we can't ever fully.
1: In, in your interaction with scientists or your own research, did you come across the research on mirror neurons?
0: Yeah, and and some of that I think. Um, I, comes up a bit when I when I talk about uh, the work of DCITY at uh, the University of Chicago who's sort of mapping which parts of our brain are firing when we see somebody else in pain and how many of those are the same parts of our brain that fire when we ourselves are in pain I think I think that that, is, as best I understand that is something yeah. what mirror neurons do um, and I you know part of what I was struck by, one of the main times that I've had the chance to actually talk to scientists was this thing I was part of, I guess maybe 14 months ago, called the, an empathy roundtable. And it was organized by this consulting firm. And it's still for talking about what people's reasons are. I don't, I don't still entirely understand what the motivation behind it was. But I do know that I was picked up in a stretch limo in Boston. And it was a stretch limo full of, um, neuroscientists and sociologists, all of whom specialized in empathy, and then me, who I think they just asked because they saw that the title of my book had <laughs> empathy in it. And so I felt very much like a non-expert in a room of experts or a limo of experts. But but yeah, the two neuroscientists who look at exactly all this what happens in our brain when we're feeling for other people um were were I remember one of them especially was really interested in talking about the importance of having engagement and encounters with other people but also kind of moments of reflection where you're like then processing what you've seen or what you've taken in and uh, that and I think she was talking about that on the sort of level of the brain where the when the brain is actively engaged certain things can't be happening and so the brain needs to take those moments where it's sort of processing all this is really layman's paraphrasing of what she said but I remember being really struck by that because it sort of honored the role of a contemplative space where you're you're engaging enough with the world outside yourself to take in information but it's also an important part of empathy is kind of an internal processing of all of that and um, so that that gave me a way to read that internal processing as not just kind of solipsistic, but actually mm-hmm. useful or productive.
1: Did you ever see the, the movie The Artist is Present about Marina Abramovich?
0: No, but one of my students was just talking about that movie in class yesterday. Yeah.
1: Because there's, in terms of like mirroring and empathy, what she decides to do, she's a performance artist, she decides to do for her retrospective at the MoMA is a three-month project where all she does is sit for seven hours a day without yeah. moving, and for 5 or 10 minutes people come and sit across from her and just they stare at each other and that's it. Yeah. And it's a it's an act of great endurance, but on the other hand it's also um creates all these powerful experiences for the people who are sitting across from her. She looks down, looks up, meets your eyes and then people have these people are lining up for hours to do to sit across from her. I had this very strange dissonance watching it because uh at, at some point you feel like this is the greatest. These are the greatest moments of human connection. These are like super deep moments. And then at other moments you feel like this is just pure self-projection. Yeah. And and even potentially great narcissism yeah. at the same time. And you you can't know. Yeah. I mean even there you're seeing all this beautiful and and not beautiful uh emoting happening.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, it's it's no, that's totally fascinating. And, and I remember hearing about that, at, that uh, installation at the moment being really interested by what she was up to. But um, I it makes me think about a friend of mine who has a has a kind of pet peeve around moments in certain kinds of long form journalistic narration where a lot depends on a moment of meaningful eye contact between the journalist or writer and some somebody who's part of whatever community or world they're documenting where that the moment of meaningful eye contact can become a kind of triumphant swelling moment where you know despite all our differences there is this felt experience of human connection And there is something valid about that, but it's also kind of easy way out because it's like, well, the truth is like, especially if you don't speak their language or whatever, you don't know what they're thinking or it might not feel like a moment of connection to them or something. But the desire to kind of put a really positive spin on certain kinds of encounter and the way that sometimes those moments of encounter really are just like blank screens that we're putting a lot of desire onto and... um, the exploration of
1: empathy seems to me like it points at this uh, inherent translational aspect to human communication, even when you are speaking right. the same language. Right. That right. You know, we have a feeling, we put it into a code, the other person takes the code and right. translates it into right. a feeling, and then right. we guess that they're the same thing. Right, right. right. Which, right. which makes me think of the uh, essay you wrote, uh, La Frontera, about, which you're exploring frontiers, but you're also exploring two cultures. Yeah on the border
0: right
1: can you talk a little bit about that one
0: yeah well that um that piece came out of an experience that I had when I went to uh, I was invited to go to a literary festival that was taking place in Tijuana and Mexicali and you know I you know at the at that point in my life I think I was living in New Haven but maybe I was living in Iowa but I you know I grew up in Los Angeles which isn't a border town but it's somewhat close and obviously there's like a huge Hispanic community there and you know you, you feel you feel the proximity to the border and I, I didn't go to that festival thinking I was going to write about it at all but I was really struck by getting to encounter I was one of the only Americans there it was really mainly um, Mexican writers and and poets and i was so many of them were trying to find a way to talk about the narco wars and the lingering impact of the narco wars and the violence that was still happening and you know i was i was thinking about how difficult talking about translation how difficult it is to enter into that large scale social economic cultural political situation through language like part partially because it's so complicated like you can try to do your homework and do your reading but it's it's just an endless labyrinth of violence and more repercussions and so many different factions at play and so that that mode of entry is really fraught and and ultimately like I I always felt like I was only ever seeing, like, a tiny fraction of it. I was just so aware of the limits of my own knowledge. And so I started thinking about how certain artists were offering different modes of entry, how a poet who's trying to document the narco wars can offer somebody a different way into that experience than, you know, trying to come to some understanding of, like, the political chronology of it. And you know, and that became really interesting to me to look at how art offers us that way into experience. And I think it's still important to know that if you read a collage poem about the impact of the narco wars on a small town, like where you are hearing all these the voices of citizens and what their experience is, you that's not the same as understanding the whole context around it. But I think it does give you entry into something and it and it can I think part of what and this is part of what the empathetic response can do more generally like it can just spark the desire to know more like even if you just get this little human piece then you think like well, i kind of want to understand more about the context around it
1: in case you just tuned in we're talking today to leslie jameson the author of the empathy exams well we hear over and over again the mantra that uh read so that you can become more empathetic and people who read more will have more empathy and you've unpacked that uh, in the New York Times a little bit, and I, and also in your exploration, I think, around narrative with the documentaries and the Lost Boy essay, yeah. also. But tell us a little bit about where you you uh, fall in line with that belief system, and where you you have question marks, because it's it's it is more complex than you're you're a reader, you're going to have more sophistication and more compassion and yeah. and you're going to be able to imagine other people more just because you you're you're going into these other people's minds
0: right right,
1: or supposedly going into their minds,
0: yeah i mean well, I, I feel like the New York Times publishes a piece like once every six months it's like. New studies show, like reading, makes us more empathetic. And some, in my reading of those, like sometimes the studies seem more compelling than others. And I, I do think there's this general idea that reading exercises the muscle in us that can empathize with others. And it's certainly true. I mean, I feel like a lot of my reading has brought me into contact with other kinds of lives, and I think there's something really good about that. And I, and I also think that being a writer does test your empathy, or you know even if it sometimes gives you the opportunity to just like project a lot. But I I also was really struck by an idea that I'm sure shows up in lots of places, but I happen to encounter it in this book called Empathy in the Novel, which is by this literary critic named Suzanne Keene. And she talks about kind of literary empathy or the empathy we feel for fictional characters is a sort of she doesn't use the phrase zero gravity, but that's how I processed it. Like it's a kind of zero gravity empathy where you get to feel for somebody who doesn't exist and that feeling for them feels good, but it also doesn't entail any obligations because they don't exist. So they're in pain, but you don't need to help them because they, they're not real anyway. So it kind of gives you the experience of feeling for somebody and we like having that experience or a lot of us do, but it doesn't doesn't come attached to any duties. And so in a sense, it's it's like, almost fooling you into feeling you've done some kind of good but there's a a little bit of a hollowness to it because you don't actually have to do anything and so I think that for me it's important to always think about the connection between empathy and taking action and so I think insofar as reading can make us more empathetic. I think it can, but I think it's dangerous when we think about that as the kind of totality of the cycle. Like I've read, I've read something, fiction or nonfiction, felt for somebody inside that narrative. Like, great, that process happened, but it's like, well, maybe that process is just a beginning to something else that could happen or some kind of action that could be taken.
1: What well, imagine also there might be cases where. Uh, people are choosing books that reinforce what they already believe. And so in a sense, they're not really spanning a bridge of of one to another.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think that's true, too.
1: We're talking today to Leslie Jameson, the author of The Empathy Exams, you're listening to Between the Covers. What are your thoughts on uh, the—I don't know if this is really a debate in nonfiction or not, but in fiction recently, there's been a big debate around— Likability and relate- relatability of of protagonists. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on that with regards to empathy?
0: Yeah, well, I you know I've been gratified as I think a lot of people have to see that question come out explicitly and to kind of have these voices pushing back against likability being a prerequisite for literary characters. And I think I've certainly thought about that as a teacher a lot, and it's something that I've said to I think primarily fiction students in workshop where a lot of when a story is getting praised, often the terms of that praise are, well, I found this character really relatable or I found this story really relatable. And I have done many times in workshop, do find myself like asking students to question that. Well, like, okay, A, how did that come about? Like, why is this story relatable to you? What did it do to make its characters or their situations feel resonant to you so to try to turn it into a question of craft rather than a kind of vague statement but also to say well why should that be the the biggest goal of a work of fiction to um you know and and also I guess trying to recognize that those are two different things likable and relatable um because I think sometimes what good fiction can do is make a character relatable whose situation isn't relatable at all, um, which gets to what you were just saying, actually, about you know, trying to get people in contact with the things that they wouldn't necessarily have already felt in contact with or close to. Um, but I think in nonfiction, one of the big things that I've struggled with, especially when I write stuff that's more personal, is the way that I think I used to really have a tendency to create myself as a very unlikable character and that that was part of how I felt like I was being honest was because I felt like if I was making myself look too great or too likable that that meant I was offering a really whitewashed or self-serving portrait of the truth and so if I made myself sort of hateful that that must mean that must equal honesty and I think part of the journey I've been on for the past, you know, five or six years that I've been really writing nonfiction, is thinking about granting myself, not condemning myself, I guess, to the space of unlikability as a narrator. Although I, I, I know that I, to some people, I'm still a very unlikable narrator. But trying to think about how to, kind of, offer my, offer honesty, that is fueled by something other than just self-laceration or self-condemnation so in a sense i guess that's the the opposite scourge like if there's the scourge of likability where some somehow authors feel like under this pressure to make all their characters likable like i felt like i was operating under some pressure to make myself very unlikable in the service of of what i understood as truth
1: well you do explore in the empathy exams uh the relationship between pain and gender and in a really interesting way and uh, do you feel like that is, has an interplay in, in this decision you made that you're struggling with yeah. uh, and can you talk more about the ways in which you you've explored gender in this collection
0: yeah yeah i think that's a great connection because i do think that part of part of my impulse at times to make myself unlikable did have to do with this shame about talking about things that had been difficult in my own life Because I was so, I felt so keenly the fear of being seen as self-pitying or, you know, mongering my own trauma. I was just reading, uh, I'm reading right now uh, Chris Krause's book, I Love Dick, which came out in the late night. I love that book. Brilliant book. But um, she talks about, like, like, how to reconcile past and present, which she frames as, like, reconciling the anorexic open wound of her past with the um like hag hustler I think the present or something and I totally identify with that line because I think so often I did really feel this hateful version of myself that was just like had my little suitcase full of kind of like pretty lame traumas actually on the scale of what trauma can be that I was sort of wheeling out um to to tell my little stories or you know get my essays published in little literary magazines or something and I think it was that sense of shame that made me make myself really unlikable often on the page and that the final essay of the collection is really trying to ask the question like where does that shame come from like the parts of me that say don't be self-pitying don't talk about your pain so much like that's unseemly like that's you know there's nothing worse than self-pity. Like, I I just started to think, well, like, where did I learn? Like, where did that harshness come from? Like, where did I learn it? And, and really the sense that so many women I knew, like, had a similar relationship to the idea of talking about their pain, that there was something kind of either that talking too much about their pain would reinforce a certain victimized or powerless status, or that it was needy and attention-grabbing in this really selfish way. And and I think there are definitely obstacles to men talking about their pain, but I my sense was that they were slightly different obstacles that had to do with uh, not wanting to demasculate themselves or uh, cede a certain kind of power. And, you know, so I, I, was, I was just interested in, in talking, both talking to other women about where they felt like that shame came from, if they also felt it, and just sort of looking at different ways that um, – female writers and artists had both expressed their pain and really expressed this sense of conflictedness about talking about it.
1: You pushed back against the subtitle Essays in Pain for this collection. It felt to me, and maybe I'm projecting that that was partially a gender-informed reaction, that that a man wouldn't have to have the same uh, considerations or concerns around putting that as a subtitle
0: yeah, that's interesting. i hadn't I hadn't been thinking about that. I think at the at the time when when we were talking about calling in essays on pain, I think my my resistance came from, one, just a sense that they were about more than pain. And so I just wanted to kind of leave their the demarcation of their concerns. I wanted to leave it open. Um and i also I also think that and I can't remember whether this was me or people on my on my amazing fantastic team at Grey wolf, but i i I do also think there was a little bit of a kind of marketing sense around it like w- how, would there be certain readers who wouldn't necessarily be so excited about a whole collection about pain? Um, but I do think that I do think that there's a w- a way as a female writer that if you broadcast like writing about pain there's a way that that can can get dismissed and so that might have been operative for me even when I wasn't fully conscious of it
1: well another thing that's happened this year since the release of the empathy exams is a uh, I think mostly on the Boston Review but several philosophers and psychologists coming out against empathy and yeah. having a round table that you participated in where uh, I think Paul Bloom and a couple other people were asserting that empathy is is not a good in fact that uh, we tend to be empathetic towards people that are like us it fosters uh, tribalism that um, maybe it's even you know leads to wars rather than prevents Wars because of the ways in which we gather around the people yeah. that we can understand and yeah. and don't even see anything about the people that yeah. we don't so yeah. what what have you taken away from yeah. or been offended by or inspired by in this conversation that's happened, I think partially because of your book.
0: Paul Bloom, who's a fantastic guy and a really really smart man and also just a really affable gracious man, but he he's a psychologist at Yale and yeah, I mean he was um, he has been writing about empathy for a long time and has been has had this sort of public position against empathy that definitely predates my book and I I, th- I mean I think. One of the pieces that first got him attention was a piece in The New Yorker that he wrote in the... I think it came out in the spring of 2013 called The Baby in the Well, A Case Against Empathy. And his piece in The Boston Review was a kind of expand, in a way, deepening the stakes of that earlier piece in The New Yorker. Um, I think it was interesting because one of the first events I did for the book was a conversation with him at Yale. And I think when he was first sent my book... He was expecting us to have a lot more disagreement than I, th- I think, in fact, we do have because I think he thought the book was going to be a celebration of empathy, a catalog of, I don't know what, instances in which I myself have been incredibly <laughs> empathetic. Like, and, you know, that I think what he found that actually the book is really asking, interrogating empathy. I think he, f- he and I both ended up feeling like even though a, a, a sort of public framing of our positions might kind of pit us against each other, we actually have a lot more common ground than we thought. I mean, I've learned so much from him about limits of empathy or potential perils of empathy that I hadn't even considered. Like, I was really fascinated by when he's talking about the way that empathy can influence policy in potentially destructive ways. He also talks about how empathy, for example, like prejudices us towards the concerns and interests of people in the present rather than people 100 years in the future. And that's really powerful to me because it's true. If we're kind of following our instincts, well, of course our instincts care about people who are in the here and now, either our loved ones who are close to us or us or even the people we can see suffering in Darfur or New Orleans right now as opposed to some hypothetical person who doesn't even exist yet, whose life is being really influenced by the way we vote on environmental issues today. You know, so I think he's really smart about how sometimes we have to let rationality and kind of conceptual choices speak up for the interests of people who are more like abstractions to us um and so there yeah there's 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 so much that I've learned from him but I also feel like we're kind of more on the same team than either of us had been yeah. expecting yeah so
1: you you mentioned I love dick by chris krauss is there are there any other books you're you're reading now that you're excited about
0: um. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a book that I just uh, finished rereading that I was really really moved by again. It had been a few years since I'd read it, but um, book called, uh, Coal Mountain Elementary by Mark Novak. Do you know I that? I don't. I don't know. But, it. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a poet and activist, and he writes documentary poetry. It's like a poetry of witnessing. But um, that book, Coal Mountain Elementary, is a collage of photographs I wish I could remember the name of the photographer that he collaborated with Ian something I think um it's a, it's photographs of uh, Chinese miners and some of Mark Novak's photographs of uh, West Virginia miners and it's um, also uses newspaper accounts of Chinese mining disasters and really fascinatingly and some uh, transcriptions from oral testimonies of West Virginia miners after a big, accident in a town called uh, Slago, I think and uh, but he also has these pieces of essentially kind of lesson plans from the American Coal Foundation or lessons that kids who are growing up in mining communities can do to learn about the history of mining and you know things like you, you take a chocolate chip cookie and you're kind of mining for the chocolate inside and you can mine it all these different ways and it's a it's a very powerful book in part because it's taking on this incredibly upsetting subject matter, I mean, the way that labor can just be a completely brutalizing, imperiling force, but it's doing it in a way that, you know, there's there's a clear moral sensibility behind it and a sensibility of protest behind it, but it doesn't feel preachy to me because it, it does have this kind of rawness of just plucking pieces of the world and, and presenting them to you, and it really guides the reader through or cu- curates these pieces of experience in a way that guides the reader through a, a real kind of a reckoning and just a kind of facing. So that um, sounds amazing. Yeah. So really, and I can't remember, it's, it's it's not particularly recent. I mean, it's maybe the last 10 or 15 years, huh. but it's a really good a-
1: book. And what are you working on or what's on the horizon for you as the next step?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the book that I'm working on now is a book about addiction narratives and the way that narrative, the role that narrative plays in in recovery. Um, and it's a combination of modes, like many of my essays. so there's uh, some there's a big memoir component to the book. Um, but it's also an exploration of other writers who have uh, told stories of their addiction and how their involvement in certain recovery institutions has changed. Their writing and what they want to write about and how they want to tell their stories, Um, and so it's also kind of dips into archives and cultural history, and in a way, it's it's my attempt to enact on the level of a book part of what recovery does interpersonally, which is like bring a lot of people's stories into a kind of echo chamber, and so the book is bringing my story alongside a lot of other people's stories, Um, and. It's it, my dissertation at Yale is is on addiction, and so this book is sort of drawing on some of the research that I've been doing for that for the past four years. Um, but there's huge parts of it that are don't have anything to do with that that kind of academic seeking and knowing. So, yeah, that's that's the next big project, and it's one that I'm already sort of deep inside of. Although I am looking forward to not being on the road so much and getting to actually write it. So.
1: Well, it's great having you on Between yeah. the Covers yeah, Leslie. Yeah, it was
0: wonderful to be here. Thank you.
1: We're talking today to author Leslie Jameson, the author of The Empathy Exams. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.